This week, we have the legendary Mike Schneider, who's the managing director of Bunnings. Now, Bunnings employs over 56,000 people across Australia and New Zealand, and is absolutely one of the most trusted brands we have in our region. Mike also holds roles outside of Bunnings with incredible groups like the mental health charity Love Me, Love You, the Corporate Mental Health Alliance of Australia, and Melbourne United Basketball Club. What I love most about Mike is not his ability to be a high performer professionally, but the empathy, the kindness, and the compassion that he shows across his family life, his personal relationships, and also his work in the community. We cover some really diverse topics here. Obviously, this is a Father's Day special, Bring It On, where we talk about things like the impact that his father has had on his life, the lessons he's imparted on his boys, as well as his journey with mental health, particularly around anxiety and some of the darker moments in his life and his career, but also his role in community and how he looks to bring kindness and compassion to everybody he meets. He really is an extraordinary guy and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'll speak to you soon. All right, Mike, uh, so good to see you again. You too. Thank you for just carving out the time. You Pleasure. Know. Always good to catch up. So. so, Mate, I think we sat next to each other at a lunch. It was the first time we connected. You probably go to many lunches, but it was memorable for me. I remember sitting in a room with some people which uh, were definitely out of my league and I remember sitting next to you and actually just having an incredibly honest and authentic conversation which was so refreshing. And at the end of that conversation, I found out your role and what you're responsible for and it just blew me away. So it's really special to, um, first of all, like meet the person behind someone who holds significant responsibility with one of Australia's most iconic brands and businesses. So I'm also really excited to meet the person in more detail today and then we can talk about the business stuff later. Hopefully I don't disappoint. (laughs) No pressure, no pressure. Um, Mate, I would just love to hear a little bit more about your story. So I think what we see with people who come with you know significant responsibilities and profiles is that narratives can be created or pedestaled or anything like that. But I'd just love to hear a little bit from you and your personal story. Um, as long as it takes, like, who is Mike Snyder and how did he get here? Yeah, it's, it's, and it's a really interesting road. Um, and it was funny, I was speaking with someone yesterday, I was doing a, a reference check for a former colleague and the lady that I was speaking to ended up being someone I'd worked with 30 years ago. And we wow. had this sort of really interesting conversation about where both our, our paths have taken us professionally. But I was, I was born in Sydney um, and I'll be 51 in a few weeks' time. So, um, you know, just around Father's Day and um, grew up in the, in the outer suburbs of Sydney at that point in time. They're probably now more like the inner suburbs of Sydney, just seeing how Sydney's exploded. But... Um, Grew up in a in you know what's probably quite a you know conventional but not conventional household. You know when I was very young, dad would go to work, mum was mum was at home. I was an only child until six, and I've now got a got a younger brother who's a, who's a few years younger than me. At, um, but from a really early age, my dad was really unwell. Lots of different um, health issues and health challenges, and probably by the time I was in grade two or grade three, he was too sick to go to work. So you know we were we were living in a in a pretty simple little home in in North Ride in Sydney and, you know, suddenly, you know, we'd gone from a family where, you know, there was an income coming to the house to a family where there was, you know, a pension in its place. So and from a really early age, I've always valued things like social welfare and the importance of community and, and, and support. And I certainly saw that live through mum and dad and the way they thought about things because they did this incredible job of um, never making us feel like we didn't have everything. And I think 
the world of the seventies is very different to the world of the the twenties. Um, you know, the absence of social media and those things meant that there was no real ability to benchmark. Um, you know, against what what other children your age were, were getting or, or not getting from a physical point of view. What I did get a lot was was love and respect and and support and an incredible value in in the importance of education as well. So you know, almost everything in our household was sacrificed to make sure that my brother and I went to as good of schools as we could go to. And there was a fair bit of discipline behind that, given the significant investment to make sure that we were at least uh, attending school and, and behaving ourselves in classroom. The academic performances were, were pretty varied. My brother, much much smarter than, than <laughs> I was. Um, and I went, I went through school, not really sure of what I wanted to do and, and what I wanted to study. But by the time I got to um, you know, the, the sort of back end of high school, so we're talking sort of mid, mid to late 80s now, um, I really settled on marine science. I thought that would be a really cool cool thing to do. And I was not too bad at maths, not too bad at science. Um, and there was only one university in Australia at the time, to my knowledge, that was offering marine science, which was James Cook University in, in northern Queensland. And that looked pretty amazing. Go and live in the tropics, swim around with fish all the time. I could see this really incredible life. But um, there were a couple of challenges uh, that were presented with that. One was that it was a fee-paying university. And I've, I've sort of touched on the fact that money was uh, was a pretty scarce commodity in, in our household. And, and the second limitation was I wasn't smart enough to get a scholarship to, um, to cover the cost. So I needed a plan B. And my plan B academically was to study to become a teacher, um, a high school teacher. So I went off to the University of New South Wales to study English literature and, and history and education so that I could teach kids um, about, you know, literature and, and history and things that, you know, I quite enjoyed, but probably wasn't my, my first my first passion. And, and about the same time, I stumbled on a, on a retail career at, at Target uh, in Sydney. So, you know, pushing, pushing a broom around a back dock and unloading <laughs> trucks and washing the boss's car. And now I'm in a leadership role. No one's interested in washing cars for the boss anymore. And I think that's a good thing that that's, that's that sort of hierarchy's left, left the world, but, um, you know, on, on to sort of big promotions, like punching the checkouts and putting stock away on, on shelves, but almost every dimension of retail, I really loved. And as I was going through my studies and starting to do prac teaching, I realized that, you know, it, it wasn't my passion. Um, you know, and, in a, in a classic parenting way, mum and dad were, were pretty adamant that I um, I stuck with my studies. So I had something to fall back on when this furphy of a retail career inevitably fell through. But I was equally fortunate to have a couple of leaders around me who uh, saw, saw something maybe I didn't see myself and, and said, look, we'd love to see you do a traineeship. So I often became a trainee manager and progressed through through leadership roles, finished my studies um, and, and stuck with retail for, for a number of years. And, and that was a really great experience because I was around team, I was around customers. I liked the opportunity to have responsibility. And I think from an early, an early point in time, I realized that, um, you know, if you're successful in business, the greatest thing you can do is create jobs for people and, and give people opportunities to, to build careers. And that was something that, um, you know, was really reinforced to me years later when I, uh, at a couple of different points, I left, I left retail in the mid nineties. I, you know, was a classic young guy that thought my talent and ability was, was much greater than it was. And I wasn't getting promoted fast enough. So I, I thought I'll show you retailers. I'll go off into banking and I'll, I'll, I'll build a career in banking. And that was really cool. Cause I learned lots of different things. I had different roles in operations and strategy and, um, you know, outside of work, I'd, I'd, I'd fallen in love and, and got married and started a family. And, um, so it was all, all, all things go and the bank was great because it gave me different roles and opportunities. We traveled to Perth and lived over there for 12 months. We moved, we moved to Melbourne, but after about five years, 
Um, I remember being in Melbourne and uh, it was Christmas time and, you know, banking everything winds down and it's, it's, you know, at that stage at least there was a lot of long lunches and client functions and those sorts of things. And I remember being in Burke Street, I mean, it was David Jones or Myra, I can't, can't remember now. Um, and the place was just heaving with customers and Christmas decorations and lights and energy and atmosphere. And it's like, what am I doing in banking? You know, this is where I want to be, not necessarily departments or retailing, but retailing. And I was fortunate enough to get back into um, get back into retail through a New Zealand retail company called The Warehouse Group. They'd bought a business here in Australia, a couple of deep discount chains and, and had a vision for, for transforming those into what, um, what their business was in New Zealand. And that was really exciting. So it was change and growth and, and retail. So I jumped back into that. Um, and, you know, after about 18 months, we had the opportunity to move back to Sydney. So, you know, finally we, we'd left, left Sydney with, with one child, came home with, with two, um, and moved back into a house that we bought just before we, we, um, moved to Perth, did the classic, you know, renovate your own home, home sort of activity and, and spent a number of years with, with the warehouse group, but they, their investment into Australia wasn't the best one for them financially. And they made a choice about 2004, 2005 to exit the Aussie market. And they did that through a sale of, of the business to private equity. And I had a great opportunity to pick up a role with private equity. They were merging half a dozen retail businesses together. And and the the, the sticking point for me was that uh, it was going to result in, in a role where for at least 12 or 18 months, I'd be rationalizing stores and letting people go. And, you know, I've touched on the fact I like to see jobs created. I equally don't like seeing jobs go and I'd had probably 12 months in the bank working in a HR function that, you know, just worked through, you know, restructures and redundancies and redeployments and saw the human impact that losing a job can have, particularly if it's a job where you feel really secure and you've never really thought about going and doing something else. And in banking, there was, you know, people with 20, 30, 40 years of service and, you know, we were saying goodbye to them and you just see the, the, the impact on the person more, more so than anything else and self-esteem and relevance and, you know, the learnings for me were one, create jobs, not, not take jobs away. And two, never let your title uh, or your job define who you are, because I think you need to have that, that life outside of work. Because for all of us, whatever we're doing in, in a, in a role will come to an end. Maybe there's a new role, maybe there's no new role, but, um, I learned that if you're defined by the title or defined by the, the position you hold, then that can be a pretty soulless and lonely, lonely place. So, um, back to 2005, realized it wasn't for me, um, sticking with private equity. So, um, I was, I was sort of here, I was with a pretty good career to date. Um, but no immediate prospects, but I did have kids and I did have a mortgage and I did have school fees. Um, so I've always been reasonably pragmatic and thought, well, I need to find another, another job. And I threw some recruiters I know, um, stumbled across an opening at, at Bunnings, uh, for a regional manager role, looking after the New South Wales store network, which was 2005. So 17 years ago, this, this sort of August, September period um, was when I joined Bunnings. And, um, you know, if, if, if this is the last organisation I work full-time for, to be really truthful, I'll, I'll have finished my career um, pretty happily, I think. You know, there's, there's lots of exciting opportunities out there, but there's something really unique about um, a business like Bunnings. And, you know, I'd heard all about the culture and um, when I joined, it, it felt really good. I felt I could be the best version of myself. Uh, I could be very you know, express who I was and, and how I want to be through my leadership style and, and the team. But after about six months, I sort of waited for the, the monster to jump out of the cupboard and sort of go, boo, this is, you know, like any other big corporate, it's, it's got rules and policies and politics. But, um, you know, three, four years later, um, when I had the opportunity to move to Melbourne and take on a broader national role, um, I'd worked out that the culture was 
the real deal and it was also something that was really valuable and needed to be safeguarded and protected um, all the time. So came into the role I'm in now in January 2016 when Bunnings um, ventured into the UK, um, which for, for some listening to the podcast will know didn't, didn't go to plan and we left it a couple of years later and I had a year looking after uh, our UK business as well as, as the Australian business, which was really fascinating and interesting and brought a lot of highs and, and lows because I got to work with some incredibly talented people. But I always remember sitting or standing in a, um, you know, in a, in a, in a floor of our offices in Milton Keynes in, um, in the UK, which is, is a pretty dismal sort of town, yeah. <coughs> MK, but um, it's where the office was telling four or 500 people that we'd failed them and that we were, we were selling the business and, and we were leaving, which if there was a silver lining, it was that we were able to sell the business and full credit to the team that run it today. They've done a great job of bringing it back to its, its roots. It's a successful business once again and, and growing. Um, some people did lose their jobs, but ultimately by selling and not closing, we, we preserved, you know, over 10,000 people's jobs, which is something that was, was very important to me. And probably, you know, a lot of people wouldn't know, but I think if we, if we had to close it down and, and close it, I couldn't have stayed doing this job. I think if, if that many people lost their job, so should I. But fortunately, we were able to to bring the team who were expats back to Australia into fantastic roles here in Australia and, and New Zealand, and they do great work for the business, you know, to this day. And and the business continues to grow. And and as you said, the brand plays a a funny part of um, you know, a funny part of a lot of Aussies and Kiwis' lives because our homes are really important to us financially, and you know, we take a lot of pride in that. We we welcome people to our homes; they're part of the community. I think. The brand can play a really important role, and that that's the sort of the professional side. If I just sl- slide back into the, the personal stuff for a moment, um, I touched on my dad's health. Um, he was really fortunate in the early nineties. He he was the recipient of a heart transplant back in the early nineties. He had a lot of heart illness and and challenge, and and you know you learn a lot about giving. You know, someone's generous enough to donate to donate organs and and create life. And at the time, I think they said he had about five years because that's where the science was at. He lived for 20, which was incredible. He got oh. to meet grandkids and watch kids get married and graduate and and all those sorts of things. And and when he when he passed away, I was just really grateful because I was grateful for the the time and I was grateful for the chance as a grown man to get to know my dad because when you're a when you're a kid growing up, your parents are, you know, can be a bit intimidating and I think parenting in 2022 is a more connected engaged experience um, than maybe it was in the 70s and 80s where some of those traditional family roles were sort of fulfilled and there was an aloofness and discipline came in in different forms and you know in you know I can still remember being on the the wrong end of the thong or the feather duster at, at different points in time from mum and dad but um, yeah, I think the world's moved in a, in a positive way. So it was great to sort of listen to his stories and learn the history of our family and things and, and that gift of time. It was incredible and, you know, whether it's gifts like that or the opportunities that people give you in your career, it, it does remind you that you've got an obligation to, to pay things forward. So that that's something that, that, that sits really strongly. I lost my mum a few years later. Um, you know, sadly that, you know, sadly for me, um, she'd, she'd done all this incredible work supporting my dad. You know, she's just a rock for him and um, she developed breast cancer. The treatments didn't work. She didn't she didn't live long after the, the diagnosis. Um, and, and it left me with a really, um, you know, an equally important, um, mindset, which is that you've got to make the most of every day. Cause you know, and there's lots of philosophical quotes, aren't there on, you know, not taking life for granted or, you know, tomorrow's not guaranteed and all the things that you see, you know, with pictures of eagles and bold statements in frames in people's offices. But ultimately 
life is short and you do get one shot. So for me, I don't want to get to the other end whenever that is and go, I wish I'd done something. I'd rather look back and cringe a little bit at a couple of dumb things I'd done than get there and go, I wish I'd done it. Because by that stage, it's it's too late. So, um, you know, for me, there's there's lots of different, you know, learnings that get you to where you are. And equally, they, they deeply inform my thinking on leading. I think that, you know... The, the, cult, the leadership culture I want to have in Bunnings, and I think we're a, maybe a six out of 10 on this because we're always looking for improvement, is, is one where we serve other people. Um, you know, so we don't have, you know, work hard to have a leadership cohort who, you know, check the ego at the door. We're, we're less bothered by title and who can tell someone what to do rather than going and saying, what's the problem that we want to solve and how do we collaborate, you know, to do that. And I think that that comes to life through the brand and, you know, probably in, in sort of closing on these remarks. The thing I like most when I say I work at Bunnings is the most the, the, the most regular question I get asked is what store do you work at? At Bunnings, we employ 56,000 people. We've got 500 sites across three different brands, Bunnings and Bunnings Warehouse. We've got Toolkit Depot and, and Beaumont Tiles. Um, so to be asked that tells us that there's this really unique connection. You know, people don't see the big organisation. They see their local store. I think what our teams do living living in communities, raising kids in communities, supporting local community organisations means that there is that, you know, that connection. Um, you know, and it is it is a really good thing. And I think it, it that humility in the brand it informs the way we want to lead at Bunnings. And, um, you know, hopefully very few of my leadership group are sort of from the central casting of what you think a senior executive should look like and rather just be really authentic people who bring their best version of themselves to work every day and if we can keep driving that it'll it continues to permeate and keep the culture alive so it's just extraordinary and i think listening to just the dots looking back and retrospect it it makes sense but often when you're moving through those kind of crucible moments in your life everything from your parents to your career choices to just listening to that whisper of what's next and actually acting on it it doesn't surprise me that you are the person who's leading, you know, one of, if not the iconic brand in Australia with so much trust. And I think the, the, to touch on what you just said, um, Bunnings has this ability as a brand to be really appealing to hipsters. Like I see the Bunnings hoodie being rolled around so that the inner uh, in the north suburbs of Melbourne, but also, yep. you know, 100-year-olds. So it's literally the the depth and breadth and range that Bunnings is able to um, have trust with people is really extraordinary just to observe as a phenomena. It, it is. And, it's, and I think that the last few years in Australia and New Zealand have, have probably uh, enhanced that to some extent because I think we've been there for um, – for our customers, you know, in almost every market in which you operated, hardware and home improvement was seen as essential retail, very similarly considered all around the world. There were very few places where, where we weren't. And I think that meant that we were very accessible for people keeping themselves occupied, keeping themselves safe. We saw a lot of research that suggested that, you know, when, when, you, when you're enduring restrictions and lockdowns, being active physically and mentally is really good for your mental health. And I think doing things around your home and garden when there weren't a lot of other options meant we did we did you know step up and we were very conscious that a lot of the things we couldn't do for the community you know the ubiquitous bunnings barbecue you know it's 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 140 or so million over the last few years has been raised for the barbecue there was extraordinary chunks of time where we couldn't do the things that were at the core of our our cultural dna so we needed to find other ways to um to engage not only with communities but with our team so that people felt that sense of connection but with that with that brand and that brand position you know it comes a, a fairly healthy sense of paranoia around protecting and preserving the brand. So you know, we want to continue to be able to push the 
you know, push the boat out into the out from the harbour into the ocean to, to do the things we want to do from a growth point of view, but do it in a way where people go, yeah, that feels like something that, that Bunnings would do. And I think we've got opportunities to continue to play a leadership role in supporting local in the community, um, doing much more in the environment. And I think our industry as an industry, and I had the opportunity to speak at a conference overseas a little while ago on this, I think our industry has a a unique role in helping you know our communities to think about their homes in a different way when it comes to sustainability and the environment and i think if we can do those things right then we we build trust but equally we know that um if we get things wrong because of our our brand um you know it's a very it's a very quick um slide down the snakes and ladder board to be to be in the in a place you don't want to be and there's been plenty of brands that have gone before us that have had enormous trust and either bad behavior by leadership poor commercial choices short-term thinking or trying to hide behind weasel words um, tends to undo things. So I think that authenticity you know, has to come through in recognising the good things we do. But if we get something wrong, we need to be really quick to, to make a, a meaningful apology, which will mean change behaviour and, and change process and, and put things right to be able to, to move forward. So people go, yeah, they made a mistake, but you know, let's be fair, you know, they've, they've done the, they've done the best they can to put it right as well. Yeah. I think that the, the leadership saying that resonates with me there is that reputation arrives on a tortoise and leaves on a horse is uh, generally Absolutely. How, how it goes. And, you know, I think it, reflecting back on the really tough, like the bloody tough last two and a half years, I think um, Bunnings is something which represents a really like a, a physical artifact of psychological safety for many people. You know, you can walk into a Bunnings, you know, huge Bunnings store and feel safe and held, which is just a really, it's just really rare. And I think over the last two and a half years when so much has been happening at like almost what we call like a meta crisis with we've got climate change, geopolitical instability with the various wars, you know, a lot of distrust with authority but still a high reliance um, let alone the impact on mental health and productivity and you know the lack of jobs absolutely it, it has a massive impact and I think what I've observed Bunnings do really well is be able to just be consistent and and also lead the way in, in a lot of like cultural practices too not even just from like a, a governance point of view but as you walk into the stores as well like clearly Bunnings has had to be nimble but the magnitude at which you've had to be nimble is, is quite you know phenomenal as well Okay, friends, this episode is brought to you by Stuff. Now, we started Stuff a few years ago just because we wanted to create a brand that represented a more modern masculinity that was moving on from all the outdated brands that perpetuated super tired and toxic stereotypes. And we wanted to create a brand that represented a more modern and authentic version of being a good bloke. The best bit about Stuff, apart from it being supercharged with essential oils, no nasties, vegan, cruelty-free, sustainable, the best part is when you buy stuff, it funds a life-changing mental health program for a boy from a low socioeconomic community. So we really wanted to give people that choice that when you're choosing your products, you can choose something that goes to a big company or you can choose something really meaningful that can make a difference in our community and do a great job at keeping you clean and feeling refreshed. So this episode brought to you by Stuff. Before we go into that, I want to kind of come back to you personally. Um, one of the things that strikes me is um, 
your your capacity to hold a lot and also your ability to reflect. Now, my sense is that may come from your childhood and being exposed to, you know, potentially the, the news about your father um, and then also going through the journey with him and then just hearing firsthand about your, your mother now. Where did that start to begin for you, your, your ability to kind of hold a lot? Yeah, it's, it is interesting. I think there's a, there's a there's an advantage in being in an organization for a long period of time. You just build up fun facts, you know, about, about an organization and, and, and you pick things up. And I think in a role like mine, you know, it's ultimately it's the, the greatest generous, generalist role in the organization because, you know, if I think about, um, you know, just in the week that we're in, you know, we're, we're talking this morning, but yesterday I was in stores, you know, talking with, with team members, some of whom, you know, have only been in the business, you know, two or three, two or three months. So, um, you know, and then, Last week we had divisional board meetings where you're speaking with, you know, executives from our owner and, you know, stakeholders from, from outside. So there's this sort of need to be across across information. I think sometimes th- there's a risk that um, you can you can hold on to perspectives or views that maybe have become a little bit outdated. So there's also the importance of staying, staying current. So um, – and I'm really lucky that I get to sort of be exposed to lots of different parts of the organisation but also much broader thinking – um, you know, our dealings with government, in our dealings with the you know analyst community, the the media community. So that exposure does give you quite a lot. Um, you know, as for the ability to retain it, I think it's a learnt, it's certainly a learnt skill because ultimately, like a lot of things in life, it comes from the school of hard knocks. I, I you know, I've I've learnt the power of preparation through just getting things wrong. I always remember I was in second year uni and. Um, I was doing. A, I talked about the fact I studied to be an English teacher. I was doing a poetry class, and po- I like some poetry. I don't like all poetry, and this poetry I particularly didn't like. <laughs> yeah. And I was asked. I was in a tute, and um, we all had to read a poem and be prepared to speak for fifteen minutes on the poem. Um, and the tute was like ten, and so two two students would get to speak at every tute. So I just hedged my bets. I wouldn't be the student and didn't prepare. I was one of the two students. That tutor made me stand in silence for fifteen minutes. It was one of the most awkward, uncomfortable, and ultimately pretty frustrating experiences. Never not been prepared ever since. But I think sometimes you have to go through something, maybe not that stupid and ridiculous, but, you know, something that makes you go, there's value in in being across stuff. And I think it becomes a learnt, a learnt skill. And I'm really fortunate. I've got incredible colleagues who provide you know, really, really good um, briefing notes and, and other things that you're able to sort of crystallise quite a lot of complex information. But ultimately you've still got to go and do the work and read full papers and, and read full articles and, and full books to make sure that you do have that foundational knowledge and then the, the sort of briefing notes and things can often be the, the bit in a moment that, that will carry you carry you through. Uh, the, the reflecting piece, I do think, comes from my childhood. I spent a lot of time as a kid in hospitals, not because I was sick, but but my old man was sick, as we as we touched on. And, and how it, old were you when oh, you found it? Earliest memories, you know, three, four, okay. you know, all, all the way on. And... You know, so you're surrounded by adults and smart adults. You know, doctors and nurses are incredibly bright and talented and big words. And, you know, I think that, you know, I, I probably learned to be more comfortable around a more senior cohort at a much younger age. And I think in my career, I was probably fortunate in, in some of the early stages of my career, I felt more comfortable often around more senior executives and maybe some of my, my colleagues. Um, because what I'd realized is that people are people. You know, people aren't, aren't a doctor or a professor or a a sister, they're a, um, you know, they're a hunter, a Mike, a Bill, whoever, like it's, so I think once you sort of realise that people are people uh, and you look past the titles, it, it does demystify and I think that 
that early reflection meant that um, I didn't need to be hung up in my own and then I could actually invest the time in doing the best I can to be a better person rather than doing the best I can be to be the next job title on the on the org chart. Mm. And was that something that you – like would you say you've always been a leader? Like were your – High school can be pretty tricky for everybody. Um, I often think about high school as just almost the most unsafe social hierarchy there is. And um, I'm curious, what was your experiences through high school? Were you always a leader or, yeah, what was your experience? If I think back, all the way back, you know, in in the latter years of primary school, they're probably the first sort of really only opportunities you get to be a leader. They have school captains and sports captains. I wanted something like that. I think I wanted it because, you know, to be truthful, the kids that had them had badges on their shirts <laughs> yeah. and something looked cool about that, right? But but by the time I got into sort of year five, six, seven, eight, I went to an all-boys Catholic school in Sydney and I was bullied mercilessly. Um, it was really horrible, you know, and it was it, it was the, the bullying that doesn't exist today. So, you know, it still beggars belief that in 2022, if a child strikes another child at school or hell breaks loose, for all the right reasons, by the way, but if that child's cyberbullied, there's no, there's no equivalent fix. And I saw that with my own, my own children. You know, they'll, they'll, you know, the younger child, my younger son, um, w- was actually, you know, bullied quite badly at school, but never physically. Um, and schools just don't seem equipped to, to deal with that. And talking to parents say that that clearly remains a challenge. But in the eighties, bullying was physical. So you were, you were punched, you were spat, you know, you were hit with sticks, you had your head flushed down the toilet. Um, all those sorts of things, and that happened for pretty much four years. I never, I've never really been able to understand why. And I've actually spoken to some of the kids that, you know, bullied me, and it was just, you know, well, it was easy to bully you because otherwise I'd have got bullied myself. It's a really, it's a dog eat dog world, right? And you know, I think as a as a person who's bullied, you you, you either end up quite likely bullying other people because you sort of know the impact it can have and the power that it can create, or you become more of an advocate for trying to to stop it in any way, shape or form. And I like to believe that I'm, I'm the latter, not the former, but I was fortunate that I got to change schools and I started due to the bullying due to the bullying. Yeah. yeah. So wow. I used to, I think it was about 10 K's from my home to my school. I was reasonably safe catching a bus to school in the morning. Cause you could sort of go different ways and avoid the bullies. And, you know, I became a librarian at school because that was a safe place. Probably didn't help in, in that domain, you know, the stereotyping that would come with that and, and what it led to from a bullying point of view. But most of the bullying would be, you know, in the afternoons when you're waiting for the school buses and things because there's no supervision and, and you're a bit more exposed. So I solved that by walking home from school every day, 10 Ks a day for probably the last couple of years of of, of, the, of time at that school. Um, and the school just either wasn't interested or incapable of, of stopping it. And, you know, as with a lot of things in bullying, if you try to stop it, um, you know, you you make the situation worse. I did learn, I did learn to box. Um, and I did learn to stand up for myself physically, but ultimately there's a numbers game when it comes to physical violence as well. So walking home was the most practical and safe option. But after a couple of years, mum and dad managed to get me into a, into a school in a completely different suburb, completely different public transport routes. And it was incredible. Like I was a different person from the first day because I just didn't have the fear. No one knew me. I had no past. And I was given this gift of a fresh start and I made lifelong friends um, made positive contributions and ultimately through those connections I was chosen to be a leader in the school and I realised then that um, people have got to give you permission to lead. You can't demand a role and, and expect the authority that comes with that. You've actually even – and I think even in, um, you know, in, in industries like law enforcement and, and things like that, I think ultimately the most successful 
you know, police officers and things are people who build connections with communities and actually can influence rather than, than demand. And I think that, um, you know, that, that question that you sometimes can be asked, you know, by people is why would anyone be led by you? I think that's a really important question. And it comes down to what are you going to do to, to be given the permission to, to be that person? And that's what I learned and that's what I liked. And I think there's a contagion to that in terms of what I then sought out in, in the rest of my career. And I've never been afraid of the responsibility. I've sometimes, I've sometimes been, you know, shit myself sometimes to be honest on, oh, look at this responsibility I've got when you stop and reflect. But I've, but I've always been comfortable with it because it comes with a desire to make things better. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I feel like you, when, once you surrender to it and get out of your mind, it just becomes a channel. Yeah. You, you're just acting from that place absolutely. of trust and intuition. I'm struck by you, the statement you said where you've actually talked to some of the people that bullied you. Do you mind just sharing a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, I, I um, you know, ironically, you know, a couple of the, so there was, there was I, I'd call, there were sort of probably two groups. There were the, there were the, the bullies themselves. And then there were the people who either bullied on the margins, so they, they joined in if it was easy, or did nothing to stop it. So I probably dive more into that that latter group because they, the, ironically, were often people who my parents were family friends with. And you know, you'd go to a family function and they'd be there, and one on one, you know, they were they were fine. And and so I sort of circled back and sort of said why. And and I do think, you know, for some it was like, well, I just was looking for yeah. One 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 kid was pretty transparent, you know. I say kid, you know, he was 18, 19 when I spoke to him about it. And it was just like, well, you know, I, I was, you know, I just used to get my kicks out of it. You know, I'd, I'd get people who were a bit younger than me and give them a hard time. And if they reacted the wrong way, I knew that they were a soft target and I'd, I'd keep going, which is a pretty miserable place to find yourself, I think. And you never know why they did what they did. Um, and then the enablers, it was very much that, well, if it wasn't you, it was going to be me. Um, and interestingly, I saw that, you know, at the time that sort of struck me as such a, a cowardly thing, but you know, I I look at um, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel early this year. I went to Yed Vashem, the Holocaust Museum. You saw that on a global scale, right? It was like, well, if if I don't if I don't help do something here, it's going to be me or, or my family. And um, and we saw it come to life disappointingly, even in our own country. You know, you think about the border closures and things like that. And you know, we lived through some pretty tough restrictions in in Melbourne compared to other parts of 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 Australia. And you know, watching watching people, you know, early on kind of go, we're with you, but no real sense of empathy, but equally, please don't come here. Um, you know, that, that idea that we're all the same and all equal, you know, it, it got twisted and distorted through language. And I think language is a really powerful tool. Uh, language creates belief, language creates um, perspective and used in the wrong way can easily create, um, you know, demarcation and discrimination. Which we've just got so much evidence of. And- 100%. You know, I think that's the big worry for how social media is used, right? And we're just seeing that play out everywhere uh, at the moment. My, that's my, you know, we're actually doing uh, a little bit of work uh, alongside stuff. Um, we run Man Cave, which is obviously uh, yep. emotional intelligence programs for boys. And we're doing a bit of work with the Department of Home Affairs at the moment. They're, they used to be concerned about the radicalization of young Islamic men. It's now young white men. So the, these boys online are just getting targeted because they're seeking purpose and community and identity, which they're not necessarily getting in community anymore, but they're getting pulled in online and their belief systems are slowly being impacted, impacted. And the models, and I'm, I'm far from a social media expert, but you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's incredible just how quickly social media catches up with you and it's, it's what your mobile device does. It's the way that you know, social media is curated down and down and down and down. And, 
you know, you only have to start talking about something going on in your life and suddenly you've got ads that, that mirror that. So you can sort of see, you know, see why. And I think it's, you know, it's going to be incumbent on on enterprise and business and government to create pathways that are meaningful and alternative that give that fulfilment because otherwise it's it's a free kick to people that want to, you know, recruit. And I think the social consequences of that for the individual but society are ultimately going to be devastating in, in a, you know, five or ten years from now if that isn't addressed. It's a massive issue. Uh, there's a, a, a guy who's a former uh, ethicist from Google, a guy called Tristan Harris, and he, you may have seen he run, he did a documentary on Netflix called the, I think it's called The Social Dilemma. Yes. And he talks about we uh, have uh, um, medieval, medieval institutions with paleolithic minds with godlike technology. And that's just quite reflective I think of where we're starting to be pulled into with technology where our screens are pulling our attention so much into them it's like good screen and bad screen you know it's my bad screen is my work screen my good screen is my social media my Netflix account but it ultimately it's pulling out us out of our just general intuition of how to move through the world the magic of connecting with nature having conversations like this where we're uninterrupted and I, I'm curious and I don't think it's necessarily going to be positive the long-term impact on kids who have grown up with that as the base plate of their entry into this world like you know I was at dinner the other day and watching a kid who would have maybe been 18 months old just sitting with the ipad right and i'm like wow that's his that that's his input from 18 months old his brain which is literally a sponge is now being pushed in and obviously tools are you know, a tool is how you choose to use it. But I think to your point earlier, there's so many, what you mentioned about cyberbullying, there's so much that is unregulated and like new and emerging. And then we've got the metaverse coming, right? Which exactly. is- And we've all got to try and understand that at some some point in time, you know, Web3 and all, all of that. But equally, I think it's it's shifting it's shifting norms. And I, and I you know, you touched on the, the impacts of the pandemic. You know, I think, you know, educating kids from home for long periods of time, you know, ultimately that shift to screens. And we saw it in the workplace, right? We spent, you know, so much time and more and more time now on screens just with meetings and, and things like that. And the way that technology is, you know, I can, you know, if I choose to for two or three days can run the whole company from my mobile phone. You know, I don't really need to log onto a laptop and, and, and get into anything because I can get everything I want served up. But that mobile phone's got all my, you know, podcast it's got my newspapers it's got my magazines it's got my social media so you're in and out of all these things all the time and i think for me the most disheartening thing is watching family sit at a, at a restaurant and everyone's on a device and you think how's their connection how's their purpose but equally um you know we all you know i think if you strapped a you know a heart rate monitor to most people the further you move their phone away from them the more the heart rate goes up because there's this anxiety that the device isn't with me and you know these days we can survive without our keys without our phone uh, without our wallet but we certainly can't survive without our phone if we leave the house so it's i'm not sure how that can correct or will correct and if it's not going to correct what can we do to make it a more more balanced space yeah and it, it comes down to the the we have the smartest minds in the world working on hijacking our attention and so these phones know us better than we know ourselves because humans you know we are very irrational at times and you know we're driven by serotonin and dopamine and these phones have become effectively like slot machines for us to you know capture our attention so Absolutely. um Great segment, <laughs> tangent there I'm happy to talk about that I want to come back to what you learned um your experiences with bullying and how that's impacted your ability to be a father. 
So you mentioned earlier that your son had, or one of your sons had experienced some bullying himself. How um, did you, I guess, learn from the experiences, the lived experience that you had, and how has that impacted your ability to be a father for your son when he's going through an experience like that? Yeah, look, you know, I still probably have regret that we didn't move faster to change the environment that he was in. You know, one of the things I learned was get out of the environment. Mm. And, you know, we we weren't able to affect the change with the school that he was at, um, that they would listen, nod earnestly, and then almost nothing would change. And I think, interestingly, it's the complexity of, you know, the, the, the webs, you know, when um, perpetrators of the bullying, their parents are staff members of the school or big, you know, contributors to school boards and things like that. You sort of see that sort of power you know the way that that, that sort of privilege and power and and political capital all all come to sort of bear on on decisions so but the control was ultimately in our hands because we could we could change the environment which which we ultimately did you're naturally very protective and some of the best and worst instincts as a as a human come out in terms of the ways that you want to um you know to act or interact and um it is really challenging to sort of try and stay composed and positive because you're also consciously trying to provide a positive role model because no point you know, grabbing said bully's dad and biffing him one because that's that's teaching completely the wrong thing. It's it's an illegal thing to do. It's the wrong thing to do. But how do you have a reasoned conversation, try and get that parent to go, I also agree it's unacceptable and I wanna affect change at the other at the other side of this. And um so that those things are a challenge. Um but, you know, for me it's it's all about um so we're all familiar with the saying, treat other people the way you want to be treated. There's a fallacy in that, I think, you know, because we all put up with rubbish every day, you know. Someone's rude to you, you know, pushes in front of you on a train or a, tra- train or a tram or the taxi doesn't want to stop or the tram doesn't want to stop or the person serving you is is rude or the plane gets cancelled. We sort of know that it's frustrating, but we sort of put up with it. And I think subconsciously it can create a bit of, well, if I don't give my best – you'll just have to put up with it because I have to put up with it. If I have to put up with crap today, you're going to have to put up with crap today. And so the way I've reframed that is to treat other people the way you want your loved ones treated. Because in my mind, um, I will put up with stuff because I do recognize not everyone has has their best day. Sometimes people just need to vent. I work in retail, we get customer complaints, we get team member complaints. So you've got to you wear those on the, on the chin. But if they were doing that to one of my kids or to my partner, my reaction would be really different because I really care about them. And it's the same for my team. So, you know, when people do things, you know, so a customer wants to rip, rip into me, bring your A game. I'm, I'm happy to listen. And if we've done the wrong thing, apologize sincerely, put it right, move on. And if we have a different point of view, we try to work through that. But if they want to go one on my team, it's a very different reaction as a business. And we really fall in behind the team member and make sure they're protected and, and kept safe. So what I've tried to instill in my two sons is think about how they'd want their mother treated or their dad treated or their grandparents treated or their uncles or aunties treated or each other treated in the choices they make about the way they treat other people and what they will and won't accept. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really fascinating how that's played out. And I, I'm really proud of them. Like, and you know, I'll I'll give you a simple example, I think, and I think it's generational as well. I think generations are are seeing the world differently. So we had a family trip to Sydney. Um, so it said mum and dad are gone, but my elderly uncle still lives in the house that I grew up in, 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 in Sydney now. He bought it off, off mum and dad and he lives in the house. So we went and did a few things with him and he's in his eighties and he loves spending time with his great nephews and all that sort of stuff. And, um, there's only so much that 20 somethings and 80 somethings have in common. So it was, you know, we spent a time with him and then we jumped over to Manly and, and, and sort of, you know, 
had a couple of beers at a, at a pub and then we caught a water taxi back to the city for dinner and we were walking home from dinner and there was my two sons, my wife and um, and their girlfriends. And we walked past a couple just outside the State Library of New South Wales, couple sitting on a park bench. The lady was clearly very intoxicated. So my first reaction was to go, is everything all right? Do you need anything? He's like, no, no, no. My girlfriend's just had too much to drink. Okay, cool. All right. And I watched these two young men go, we, we talk about three more steps. I go, no, that's not good enough. I go, well, what do you mean? And they go, how do you know it's a partner? How do you know he's not just got a drunken second we're not around, he's going to take advantage? You need to do something. You need to call an ambulance. So that's what we did. And I was actually really proud. So they've actually taken some of that and kind of they see the world in a different way. And I think they're, you know, we still have social norms in our own head and the way we sort of look at problems. So, you know, I look at that now with hindsight and go, yeah, I didn't actually do enough. I should have actually stepped up. So that's educated me. But I was also equally really proud that they were prepared to go, no, that's that's not good enough. Equally got to balance it with their age and, and life experience. And, you know, we've, we've been out a couple of times and they something's going wrong and they feel that they need to get involved in something. It's, it's trying to explain risk versus, you know, well, actually just go and get the security person who's trained to deal with that, to deal with that rather than involve yourself. But, um, you know, as a, as a parent, you know, I'm really confident that they've they've learned and grown from it as as have I. But they've clearly got some life skills that they now put into practice that actually help help with that sort of care for other people the way they'd want their family and friends cared for. Yeah, well, I think what I hear inside of that is that you can tell them all the right things, but they've witnessed the behavior from you. And I think we know this from working with so many young people that um, they mimic what they see. And that's that's the behavior that they're around. That's behavior constantly. breeds behavior, right? Behavior Sorry, breeds behavior. Absolutely. And I think what a phenomenal example of family values in action. You know, first of all, you leading it with the inquiry, but then secondly, them coming up going, no, I don't think you're seeing the full picture here. We need to do something about that. What a brilliant moment to have. And to me, it's it's a credit to the way that um, that information is being communicated to that generation because they are seeing around the corner a bit and actually looking at things in a different, in a different way. And they come from, they come from very different walks of life. You know, one's studying a master's degree and one's a carpenter, right? So they're not, you know, they're, they're very different in a lot of ways, but very similar, but they're both sort of looking at these problems in that way. So to me, the world in which they're growing up is also educating them to think about, you know, some of those things as well and, and not allowing norming effects of social media or pornography or anything else to define how they see how other people should be treated. And I think that's, you know, that's a credit to them, um, but it's also a credit, I think, to the way that you know the positive messages in in our community are getting through to the generation. I think the work that that you do is a is a good illustration of that. You know, there is this messaging, and if they're prepared to be open and listen and hear hear it and take it to heart, it can lead to positive outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's you know certain lessons that are great to be imparted by parents, but we also know in those formative years, particularly for teenagers from like kind of 12 to 16, they seek that mentoring guidance elsewhere. And that's where I think it's a really interesting time for us where that's where community used to come in, the uncles, the aunties, the close family friend. But yeah. just because we don't have as many things that bring us together as a community these days, um, there is this like, I can, I, I feel it and I see it, this desperation for mentoring that is um, a little bit more relatable to their life experience but also coming back to what you said earlier, I think we are really missing this kind of intergenerational leadership too, like young people spending time with their, their elders and just the wisdom that's able to be passed on there. We, we see it at work. Um, mm. So you know, one of the things that I'm really proud of and, and we're held up, the, the brand is held up as a, as a leader in this space, but we sort of, 
fell into it, which is is you know we're one of Australia's leading employers of over fifties. Yeah, um, and we, just to, we just give the size of Bunnings here. So fifty six fifty six thousand about about twenty five percent of our workforce is aged over fifty. So they, these are people who, you know, some some have built great careers, but often we we get people you know, and I've I've presented tw- plenty of twenty year service badges to people in the seventies who've come and built a second career at Bunnings. Wow. Yep. They, they were a carpenter, they're an electrician, they were a CEO, they're a judge. We've had admirals and you know police chiefs and all sorts of people turn up. You know, working for us, and you, you you do learn from that. And you know, probably until last year when I turned fifty, I was a little bit smug in saying, you know, we employ all these over fifties. Now I am one. <laughs> um, there's a vulnerability, right? Because mm. a lot of people in the market look at look at people at at my age and older and go, are we going to get the best? You know, or do we want to take the risk? You know, I know industries where they take people who have worked a whole career and and they've got to a point where you know they're physically a bit broken. They've been lifting and moving heavy items and they become a risk profile issue and they get moved out because they're a risk profile. Whereas we, we actively recruit it because there's this really rich life skill that comes. And I think when you're doing things around your home, having people who've got life skills is a really important, you know, way to, you know, to, to sort of share practical tips to sort of do things around the home for less, you know, uh, you know, I once learned that instead of using WD-40 to stop a squeaky door, you can use cooking oil, you know, and, and it doesn't smell like petrol and you don't have to go and buy a can of it. Right. So our team are out there having those conversations every day, saving customers money, creating value, they're also teaching young people all the time about those skills. And the young people are actually, in return, teaching our older team about technology. So we run an enterprise social media platform um, that uh, Meta or Facebook have, which is called Workplace. We've got about 48,000 of our team that, that are on it. We've got a couple of studios with a lot of live stream broadcasts, those sorts of things. So, you know, you, you take you take effectively Facebook for work to a 70-year-old and they look at you like you're an alien. But, you know, here we've got 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds mm-hmm. teaching these 10 members, well, this is a way you can connect and engage and share your experiences and, and and learn from that. They're then taking that and going home and talking to their grandkids and being able to talk about social media a little bit. So there's there's serendipitous learning going on all the time. But um, you're right, those that, that's saying it takes a village to raise a child. The villages aren't there so much, you know, anymore. Like growing up where I grew up, all of my uncle, all of my next door neighbours, you know, up and down the street were uncle and auntie something. Not because they were related, but that's just the way you talk to, to your elders. And um, you learned from them. They gave you a clip around the ears if you, you were mucking up or they, you know, would catch you doing the wrong thing like sneaking a cigarette around the back of the toilet block. Yeah. They'd, give, they'd, they'd tune you up and then not tell your parents. So you were learning all the time, right? Mm. Those things just aren't there and uh, more of them have been removed probably in the, in the last couple of years as we know. And, um, you know, we've just got to find – the environments in which we can bring that back because it's so incredibly important. Yeah, I do think there is going to be a, a movement, particularly as we see like the metaverse on one hand, but I do think this kind of community is coming back, like this sense of desire for community. And I even think about, you know, in COVID, like we were kind of forced to our rooms and into our, you know, five kilometre radiuses. And I knew my, the block, like like the back of my hand, I knew everyone's gardens, I knew all my neighbours. And I was like, I would never have had this life experience if this kind of, you know, COVID experience hadn't happened in the way yeah. that it had. It sort of, reimpo- for me, it reimposed the seven and 80s on the community which mm. is, yeah with with technology and i'm not sure how to be truthful you know we would have survived some of the restrictions without you know some of the things we were able to sort of access from a streaming point of view and those sorts of things because i do think that um it, it helped it helped people occupy the time but you certainly saw communities come to life i live in the inner north you know and you know everyone lives you know very close to one another and you did see that you saw street activities and mm. things that you wouldn't have seen and 
those connections are, are lasting. And, and I think for younger kids coming through, that'll be important because they, now they know their neighbours, they know they're safe if they can go to their neighbour's house, all those sorts of things. I think we'd lost a bit of that. So mm. it might be one of the very few silver linings that come from the last couple of years. Yeah, and I think, we, you know, as we know, we're social creatures, right? Like we, the pseudo-connections that we get from social media is just not going to be sustainable over the long term. And I think that's what we're seeing play out in so many mental health challenges that we're seeing Absolutely. across the board, intergenerationally too. Yeah. Um, speaking of mental health, I know that's something that you've been very active and passionate about inside of your, you know, the, the role that you play in community across a whole spectrum of, you know, government, corporate, um, political at times as well, but just, you know, being a community member. Um, what's been your journey with mental health? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. You know, I've, I've had my own battles with anxiety. I've, I've watched it in family members who've had depression and substance abuse and, and all those sorts of things. And, you know, I've seen it in in my kids as well. You know, with with anxiety and the ways that it 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 you know just robs you of the essence of you and the confidence. Mm. You know, and and you see it in your workmates. You know, I've I've um, you know people who are sort of you know super happy and effervescent battling away with these chronic mental health diseases. And the real challenge for me is that you know it, it comes in two parts. One is trying to find it and see it so you can help, and the other one is. Um, making it really okay to talk about, you know, and I think that um, you know, there's there's a reticence to um, you know to, to come out and and talk very openly, and some of that some of that's for practical reasons. You know, I, I learned really early on, um, you know, that um, you know what's written on your medical files can have a real consequence when it mm-hmm. comes to getting life insurance or income protection or all these sorts of things. And so I think I think a lot of you know, particularly for senior business leaders, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, nervousness about saying, you know, I've been taking medication for depression or I've got bipolar or I've got this or I've got that because, you know, it, it, it may mean that they're judged. They may be seen by their board as a risk or like there's all these sort of pre, you know, pre-existing judgments that are there. But then there's a whole thing about how would I, you know, if I can't access these insurances, how do I provide for my family if I'm I'm not around? You know, yeah. it's it's not that I'm proposing to to end my life by by self harm or suicide, but you know, it might have a heart disease, it might have cancer, it might have motor neuron disease, whatever it is. Um, but if I can't get this, I can't provide for my family. So suddenly, I'm, I don't want to talk about it. And I think equally, um, a lot of leaders want to present as bulletproof and have all the answers. And I know that we're not, and I know that we don't. Mm. And I think it's okay to have that, but making that a, a, a conversation that's easy to have in a business is important because you can't see the injury. You know, I fall down the stairs here when I leave leave today and, and need a moon boot for six straight weeks. Everyone will go, what's wrong with your leg? If my heart's bleeding or my mind's tortured, mm. you can't see it. Yeah. And humans are really good at masking that mm. stuff. And, you know, you, you see and hear that when people tragically take their lives. And, you know, I was only talking to that person yesterday and they were really happy or mm. – you know, we've seen it in our own team. We've had team members who've tragically taken their own lives and, you know, the team will talk about the last shift they work with a person. It's like, just would never have ever known. Yeah. Um, and often it's, that's the scary part because more often than not, it's the, it's the, it's the people. And, I, and the statistics are really telling, you know, more women than men attempt suicide. Men being men tend to get the outcome they're looking for. So the, the success rate, if, if, if that's the right way to describe it, of men attempting suicide is, is incredibly high. And the number of men killing themselves every day is, is beyond belief. You know, we, we track all sorts of case numbers and report all sorts of things. We don't, we don't talk about these things. And I think if we can make that part of the conversation and make it a safer place to talk, 
that's at least the starting point for making things better. And that's the journey we're on at, at Bunnings is just make it really easy to talk about it. We've, we've lowered so many thresholds for accessing mental health care and, and we've educated many of our leaders in mental health first aid training so that they've at least got a sense of what to do when they sort of ask a question like, are you okay? And someone says, actually, I'm not. Mm. You know, because that's actually when you really need to step up is when someone goes, actually, I'm, I'm not and I'm glad you asked. And equally, we've got to have courageous leaders who will intervene and go, you're not okay, you need some support. You know, I had a dark period in my time back 2018. I touched on the fact that we lost the business in the UK. I lost I lost my marriage. Um, you know, I had some courageous colleagues that went, you're not doing okay, mate. You need, mm. you need some help. And, you know, it wasn't that I needed to, to go and take time off or go on, you know, down a, a medication path or anything like that. I just needed someone to have a really good talk to and yeah. express feelings and emotions. And, and that, so it could clearly affect everyone. It's, and no one's immune from it. And... I think in in the world we live in, with the pressure we, we face, the challenges we face, and I think some of the legacies of of something like a pandemic, you know, these are things that we're going to need to equip ourselves much more than we are today um, to be able to to move into the future. And the shortage of allied health professionals and you know psychologists and psychiatrists and counsellors um, only exacerbates it. And and anyone that's that's listening will know if you've tried to you know start an appointment with a with a counsellor or a psychologist, often the waits. A long, long time, and if you're not doing well, that's a really, really bad place to be. Yeah, absolutely. I even reflect on my. I think I first saw a psychologist when I was 24. Um, just you know, 24 year old, moving through the world, a lot of things happening. Didn't necessarily feel like I had the emotional skills to be able to navigate it. And even you know, I knew um, my dad is a psychologist, so I knew that like psychologist was a good step to go. But there was still a threshold, and almost this potentially this old school masculine conditioning that I'll just get through it should be right, just another tricky day. And I just noticed that I was just accruing that. And I remember the first time I uh, went to a psychologist, I walked out and afterwards it was like the world had changed, like my brain had unlocked and everything was all fuzzy. But I did feel a sense of liberation in that moment. But what was really interesting is then I didn't go back for a while. So I had this amazing peak experience and then I was like, I think I'm okay. I don't know how I feel. But then I also know after those that, you know, do make that leap to see a psychologist, there's a huge gap who then regress back yeah. into the mental health challenges too. Well, well sometimes I think you, you become, you know, there's a model we use at, at Bunnings and, you know, and it goes from effectively being unconsciously incompetent. You mm. don't know what you don't know. And, you know, the best example is if you're, if you're a kid and watch mum or dad driving a manual car, you think you know what they know what they're doing and then you sit behind the wheel and there's three pedals and a gear stick and you've got absolutely no idea through to – you know, unconsciously competent things just happen. You know, again, stick with a manual car. You, you know where the gears are. You don't even think about looking. It just feels right. You can hear the engine. You don't need to do anything. And then there's everything in the middle, which is consciously incompetent and consciously competent. And I think when you start that journey, you're unconsciously incompetent, right? You actually don't know what you don't know. You, you know you don't feel right, but you don't know why. You can't. You can't label it. You can't. You can't articulate it. You just know you're not feeling. And often that is a slow, you know, slow slide, right? You just mm. feel a little bit less good and the less good becomes the new normal until it becomes a bit less and you don't notice those those bumps along the way. When you get to that and you get someone starts to talk about it, I think for some it actually freaks them out because now something's wrong with me and I don't know how to deal with it and that's where that regression comes from. Whereas others, you know, in the experience you shared, you step up because you kind of go, well, actually I can, I can label this, I can articulate, I, I know what it is and I can control it. And it's giving people the confidence to go back and, and part of that is having the confidence to talk about it because then – People generally, in my experience, want to help. So if you say you're doing it tough and you know, I've seen a psychologist, I'm not sure about it, come on, let's stick. You should stick with it. It's a really good thing. I think that's a really powerful way to 
um, you know, support people. But again, it, it doesn't work if people don't have the confidence to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like, and this is kind of comes back to how stuff is funding man cave, but really man cave is a training ground to support boys to not only learn how to express, but how other boys know how to emotionally hold that. Yeah. Cause that's the trickiest thing. You know, when someone does open up, you kind of go, Oh fuck, like how do I hold this? Like I'm not a psychologist, but the reality is we can't keep waiting for the seeing the psychologist as the first step in the process. Cause we're already seeing a backlog. And so it's, how do we start to train particularly young people in the, the skill to be able to hold space you'd be able to empathize with one another but most of all just be authentic and just go listen it sounds like you're going through a lot i don't know what to say but i'm just sitting here with you right now yeah and i think that that willingness just to be there is the first step but equally it's um it's having the the self-awareness the courage i'm not sure the right way to describe it to actually not not shrink from that kind of oh that's a shame Mm. or that's awkward or well, you're weird, you know, like that's that's where you do need to have that that ability to have that confidence and, and holding it is a good way because of describing it because ultimately that's what you've got to do because and scarily it's probably taking on a burden from someone else maybe when you've got your own burdens, you know, and 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 not putting yourself in a position where, oh, that's that's sorry, I'm sorry to hear that, Hunter. You should hear my story. It's even worse. Yeah. You end up with a typical male competition of who's got the biggest biggest problems, right? That's yeah. equally destructive. So it is that ability to hold. I think it's a really good way of describing it. Yeah, and I think it's just we're at this point now where there's so much external influence, so much change, so much happening that we have a responsibility for our own well-being amongst anything else to start to learn how to sift through the, you know, the diverse and almost – um, infinite inner world that we have and just going, okay, if I'm not good, the rest of my life is likely not going to be good and it's going to kind of um, funnel out. So I think, yeah, there's a real kind of call to action that's kind of being forced upon us to learn how to put our well-being first. And it's the classic thing they say, when the plane's going down, put your fa- face mask on first, then you can serve the person next yeah. to you. Um, yeah, and my hope for anyone listening is, you know, just whatever that means to you, you know, find exactly. – Yeah, whether it's journaling, finding someone you can talk to um, – like whatever it is, you know, the, the list we can we can put in the show notes. But yeah, just a starting point to go, how do I prioritize my own well-being first, then look at my relationships and my professional commitments too. And I think ultimately it's it's giving yourself permission to do that because it's really easy to help lots and lots of people and almost becomes systematic. It's an excuse for not looking after yourself, I think, to mm. some extent. Or and and excuse might be a, a too harsh a term, but Equally, you know, all that emotional support can can drain you yourself, and and you know, you can maybe start to, you know, live a life that's there's actually got a bit of falseness to it because you're actually so busy and preoccupied helping other people that in not helping yourself, you, know, you, you leave yourself very short. That's it. Yeah, and people ultimately want to know that you're good. <laughs> like, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. and if you're not good, it's really hard to be really good for other people. Absolutely, and you know, we come back to high performance. Like the best high performers, in my experience, manage their energy. You know, better than anyone else. Like as work increases in velocity, so does their self-care. Um, but again, it's not told. It's like kind of productivity, productivity. But I'm starting to see a shift in leaders just like yourself who actively know you need to be feeling yourself and then that ripples out on everybody, including your decisions that you make as well. Absolutely. So just this is the father's, one of the Father's Day specials. Um, I want to come back to what were some of the, the kind of key lessons that you learned from your father? Um. Lots and lots of different things when I think about my relationship with dad. And I think one that, you know, he was always affectionate. Mm. You know, in, in an era where it was still, you know, not 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 the done thing for, for, you know, men to show affection towards each other, he was always affectionate, always 
you know, wanted a hug, always, you know, was was there. He, to the best extent he could with his with his health challenges, wanted to participate, you know, so still supported the local soccer team, still, you know, did the equivalent of the Bunnings barbecue to, to raise money, you know, sold raffle tickets, did all those sorts of things. Um, really strong role model in, in doing things in the community um, and very much um, yeah, always had a kind heart. You know, mm. I think never never wanted to turn you know, turn anyone away, always wanted to find ways, you know, to help. So I think they're, they're lasting memories. I think one of the interesting challenges for me as a dad is that his absence, um, you know, and, and his absence um, – as a, as a particularly as a teenager when his when his health was at his worst mm. made it harder for me to know how to parent mm. teenagers because I didn't have a model a, a model um, and equally that that would be a challenge parenting now that my my sons are adults um, because the relationship changes you know not not necessarily at 18 it's sort of 16 17 18 19 20 the relationship starts to move from yeah, a parent that's that's quite directional to a parent that you know actually wants to see their kids fly the nest and, mm. and do things but retain a, a close connection and relationship and I'm really fortunate that you know I've 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 learned and I've had to relearn as a dad you know separating you know from from their mum meant I had to learn to be both parents yeah. at different times you know and you need to play a different role in in different circumstances and I think when you're in a family and you've got two parents um, each parent will play a role um, and they're not necessarily traditional mum dad roles they're just parent A and parent B and, and one will index on this and one will index on mm. that and they, they work in, in tandem to give a give a well rounded hopefully a well rounded parenting experience and but for single parents and, you know, for parents who separated, um, you know, you, you need to have you know, you, you need to sort of have the the bass and the melody all working together, if you like. And and that's been another set of learnings and that's not something that I've, I'm ever gonna have been able to learn from my dad because there was always a mm. you know, mum and dad or two parents together. So uh, it is a constant, is a constant learning experience. But yeah, if I if I came if I came back to one word, it's kindness, um, and that that always came through. I love that, and it's something I can just feel from you. You know, there's there's an inherent care, but there's there's kindness. You know, in in your engagements with me, you know how I've seen you meet people, but also in like the media when I've seen you had to show up. It's like there's an inherent sense of kindness there. I think the world right now is seeking kindness or needing a bit of healing from kindness too. So Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for role modeling that. Pleasure. And in terms of your own journey, um, I just want to come back to with like having to kind of learn on the fly without having that model. It must have been pretty bloody difficult to have been having the bullying experience but also your, your father not present. Um, you know, a quote which sticks to me from Ray Dalio of all people has come through, which is pain plus reflection equals progress and this whole idea of like we can go through these traumas and they can really impact us negatively but they can also be phenomenal growth experiences for us where they shape our character and I think as we're looking to parent the next generation through cultivating that resilience through really challenging circumstances is super important how have you managed to cultivate resilience in in your boys um I'm not sure I've done as good a job as I would like um I think that by, so there's, you know, if I if I start with reflection, I think I learned to go into myself a lot. So you know, if I if I do any personality profiles and things like that, I, I always show up as an introvert, which is ironic given the mm. sort of forced extroversion that a role like mine 
um, has from a professional sense. Um, so I find that quite emotionally draining. So to do any sort of public speaking or anything like that, um, it, it comes with a bit of personal drain because you, you're pushing yourself into a zone that's that's not natural. Um, but you do learn to become very resilient because necessity literally is the mother of all in inventions, right? You don't have any money, you work out how to earn money. You don't have belongings, you learn to get belongings and, and go from it. You know, my sons have grown up in a, in a really different environment. You know, they've been very fortunate that some of the, the financial challenges that my family faced growing up weren't present for them. So you've got this alternative paradigm where actually, you know, you know, just because you can do something, should you do it? Mm. You know, just because you can buy something or organize something, should you do it? And um, when you overlay um, you know, a, a, a relationship breakdown or something like that, you tend to over-index on experiential and, and support because you, you want to retain that, that, that love and that connection. And, um, I, you know, I think that I've got an exceptionally close relationship with my two sons. Um, but I think that when they need to be resilient and do things that are unique to their domain academically for, for one and, and on the tools for the other, they're, they're brilliant at doing that. I think they're, they're really keen to, to sort of have a, have a more in, integrated conversation on a lot of other things where I'd probably look at it and go, well, at your age I was doing this or doing that. But I do accept that, that the world we live in is a really, really different world. And I think that, you know, the experiences of their generation, you know, so these are people entering adulthood on the edge of a pandemic has actually been materially shaped by that because they were disempowered from doing so many things. You know, and you know the most natural thing for a for an eighteen year old to be doing, you know, on almost any night of the week when they've, you know, not not at school is going out with their mates. You know, mm. they they live through eight o'clock curfews, um, you know, and 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 these sorts of things because they, they were living here in in Melbourne, and um, you know, so I think some of that resilience is still still to come. And the the challenging part of the conversations we're now having is you need to solve that problem for yourself, mate. You need to do this. Now they live on their own. They've got a level of independence um, and that's that's teaching them a whole lot about, you know, managing budgets and, and all those sorts of things. But it's, um, it is encouraging them and, and constantly reminding them that, you know, it's not, a it's not a lack of desire to spend time or quality time with them when I, you know, say no, no to spending time or something like that. Sometimes it's, it is the job that gets in the way and that, that is a burden they've had to live with, you know, for quite a lot of, part of me their lives um because the job has its demands mm. but equally some of it's coming from a good place which is you need to get out and sort this stuff out for yourself because one day you're going to have to one day i'm not going to be here mm. to do that for you. and if you don't have those skills um you know that's not going to you know stand you in the sort of stead you're probably going to need to be in um to be able to withstand some of the the bigger challenges that are going to come you know as, as life unfolds because yeah, absolutely. I think it's the the moments, the teachable moments, yeah, the crucial parts of their lives are so important. And having a, a role model that, you know, at times can be firm and straight is important, but also having the ability to have a nuance going, actually, I need to be more nurturing and careful right now yeah. to kind of support them through this period is really important. But we also know family values, like the crucible moments that happen, particularly through like the early childhood years, are like little seeds that get sown. And sometimes they might be, you know, 30, 40, 50, when those little little kind of light bulb moments come out that, oh, I did get exposed to that and that's why I'm choosing this decision right now. And, and some of it too is just reminding, you know, because, um, 
you know, it would be really easy to, you know, if you've got a parent that's that's really busy to sort of go, oh, you weren't present or you you weren't you weren't there. But actually, to go back and have the conversations about the times you were and remind mm. them of the moments and the memories and the artifacts of those times and go, well, you know, there's 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 other there's other parts to this story and it's it's helping to make sure that the narrative of your childhood is actually a complete one, which includes the really good things and the really challenging things because they are the things when you when you start to reflect and think about well what I want to continue to sort of take forward in my life and what I want to let go of. If you've got that sort of biased narrative, it, it, it can distort where you want to go in the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I just, anyone I speak to who wants to kind of continue their own healing journey to be the best version of themselves, it's like start with your childhood. You know, what were the stories that you remember? Now, what was the story you created and what actually happened? Yeah. You know, and I think often we keep these little views of incidents that happen that shape how we deal with the world. And I think to your point, just being a, f- a physical reminder to your, stu- your students, yeah, also your students, yeah, your boys, um, you know, here's some, here's the evidence just to kind of keep, you know, things aligned that this has happened and also cultivating that sense of gratitude that they are who they are because of these experiences that have shaped their character. Mm, exactly right. Mate, we'll wrap up now. One final question for you. Um, we, through Man Cave and also stuff, obviously do a lot of work with teenage boys. Is there any advice that you would give to a younger you knowing the kind of the path that you've stepped through to this date? Um, there's probably some moments where I was an absolute idiot that you go, <laughs> hey, don't do that. Um, that's not going to work very well for you. But ultimately, I think, there's probably a couple of affirmations I'd give. One one would be to take opportunities when they presented, and I think when I look at both at my career and my life, I've sort of opted for the the why wouldn't I have a go rather than the why should I. Like I think I'm I'm a reasonably I like to think I'm a reasonably risk averse person, um, but I think I've got a healthy risk appetite for for taking those opportunities and chances, whether it's moving for a job or changing industries or, or those sorts of things. Um, you know, I think that. Even at a young age, your gut instinct is still a pretty important mm. tool, and if it doesn't feel right, don't do it. Um, and I think you know, in a in a world where um, you know there's there's lots of conversations around consent, for example, you know, you know, I think that you know it starts with does this really feel right? And you know, most people know in a moment, you know, and part of that is being well educated. Part of it's you know a level of restraint so you don't put yourself in a situation where you lose the ability to make sensible judgments so you're not drinking too much or you're not taking substances that are going to you know cloud your judgment so you know taking calculated risk really investing in in understanding yourself so you know the value set you know when your your gut kicks in and goes oh that's not a good idea that you're you're erring you're erring on that side um i think probably you you know the the last one would would probably be don't over-index on work, um, you know, and there's certainly been points, you know, because I, I really love what I do. I mm. love the brand I'm in. I love the, the industry I'm in. I love the role and, and the organisation. Sometimes it's a little bit easy to let it consume a little bit more than it should. And, you know, and, and last but not least, it's always surround yourself with a, you know, whether you call it a personal board of directors or a yeah. friendship circle or whatever, people who will keep your feet on the ground. Mm. Uh, and I'm really grateful in my life, whether it's my partner, my kids, my friends, um, none of them give a rat's what I do for a day job. They just value me for the person that I am. And if you're being a tool, they'll tell you you're being a tool. And and everyone is a tool at some point in time, and you need to you need to be yeah. called on that. And I think that's that's really important because otherwise you just start to believe your own 
PR and, and that's a really dangerous place to find yourself. <laughs> Your own PR, I like that. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. No, I really mean And happy Father's Day to all the all the <laughs> All the, all the dads out there because um, it's not the easiest job in the world and, and it's one that is is changing more than ever before. So I hope it's a great day for everyone. Yeah, agreed, mate. And I think to your point, the, the models of masculinity are emerging. Like it's new. It's We've had to let go of some things, learn a bunch of other things and it's it's pretty uncharted at this stage. So I just want to say thank you for being such a role model that leans into the, you know, the awkward but necessary conversations. Someone who can show that in your family unit, like you clearly you get the priorities. Like, yeah, I can have the title, but that means nothing if I'm not that inside of the relationships that mean the most to me. And really just consistently heard your service throughout everything that you do. It is just about supporting whether it's family or community or workplace. Uh, and that's just embedded with kindness. So I just want to say thank you so much. Thanks for your kind words. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to, to um, spend some time and catch up. It's been too long, so it's been good. Thank you, mate. Thank you.